But my philosophy is very simple. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, say something, do something, get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. Strength and solidarity. The strength and solidarity. Divided is our nation, combating and fighting hatred. The mission, should you choose to accept it, is fighting racist. Psychology is just a space where we run in our simulations. We load you up with the tools, then we plug you into the matrix. So have a seat on the couch, now tell me your situation. Take a look in the mirror, be honest, just who you facing. Marginalized as a youth, what challenges were you faced with? Feeling you wasn't equal, told that you wouldn't make it. Your idea isn't real, got you constantly trying to fake it. Hiding behind masks in the closet till you can't take it. Getting harder to Someone's choking you on the pavement Unspeakable violence attacking you cause you Asian Accomplices, we accomplish through collaboration Engaging, educating, evaluating one another Liberating the future of all our sisters and brothers Empowering, elevating all communities of color Strength and solidarity The strength and solidarity The Strength and Solidarity podcast is a conversational piece that invites scholars, community activists, leaders, artists, and entrepreneurs to discuss their work as accomplices in cultivating cross-racial ethnic solidarity. Hosted and produced by Pooja Mami Dana and Dr. Dana Demenari, our podcast team also includes our podcast interns, Alexis Rios and Petra Zadroga. The Strength and Solidarity podcast strives to engage, educate, evaluate, and empower communities of color one episode at a time. Our guest today features Terrell Taylor. Terrell Taylor is a doctoral candidate in the Counseling Psychology program at the University of North Dakota and a pre-doctoral intern at the Counseling and Mental Health Center at the University of Texas at Austin. Beginning in fall 2023, Terrell will join the University of Maryland College Park as an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology. His areas of research focus on issues of race and racism, with specific emphasis on intersectionality, racial disparities in systems of justice, anti-Black racism, and restorative justice. He developed the Restorative Justice Attitude Scale, a measure designed to investigate individual support for reconciliation and healing processes, which was published in The Counseling Psychologist. He has since used the measure to analyze how race and racism influence individuals' decision-making when interfaced with system of justice. It is his intent to develop intervention and prevention mechanisms that will have an impact on dismantling all forms of racism and oppression that restrict Black, Indigenous, and people of color, BIPOC, from living authentic, healthy, and meaningful lives. Terrell's research has received national recognition. His dissertation entitled, Does Race Matter? An Experimental Vignette Study on Harm, Severity, College Student Discipline, and Restorative Justice was selected as the winner of the 2022 Jeffrey S. Tanaka Memorial Dissertation Award on behalf of the APA Committee on Ethnic Minority Affairs. Terrell also received the APA Division 45 2022 Outstanding Student Research Award, and he was also the 2020 recipient of the Barbara Smith and Jewel E. Herbert Graduate Student Award for research on queer individuals of color. In addition, Terrell received an outstanding dedication to social justice and liberation and counseling psychology award from the student affiliates of 17, APA Division 17. In his spare time, Terrell enjoys traveling and spending time with his friends and family. Hi, Terrell. Thank you so much for being here on our podcast today, Strength and Solidarity with Dr. Donna and I. So nice to have you here. Yes, excited to be here. And, and nice glad to meet you. Me. Absolutely. Nice to meet you as well. 
So we'd just like to begin um, by just, you know, knowing our origin story of our guests we have here on the podcast. And we know that going through grad school is a challenge mentally, emotionally, and physically. So we were curious to understand what made you what made you decide to go to graduate school? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I often think and reflect on just my experience of being in graduate school and the pathways that led me to pursue graduate training. I don't think that as a high school student, certainly, but also thinking about being an undergrad, I, I didn't perceive at any point like graduate school really even being a potential um, for me. So I did not enter undergraduate with the desire of pursuing graduate training. It kind of happenstance is what led me to graduate school. Um, in particular, I recall being in a research methods class with a school psychologist by the name of Dr. Sammy McQuillan, and he was doing some research in the local third ward area of Houston, Texas. Um, I attended undergrad at the University of Houston, and he was doing a, a mentorship project with students of color in the community thinking about how do we use motivational interviewing to enhance their academic self-efficacy um, and their desires to continue to engage and excel academically. At this point, I had no idea about research. Uh, I had no idea what it meant being involved in a research lab and that that was even connected to what people do in graduate school. Um, but I wrote a paper in his class and, and he approached me and said, Troy, your writing is really good. It's at the graduate school level. And, and for me, as being someone who did not even imagine the possibility of going to graduate school, having someone really pour in and point out like, hey, you have this potential and I think you should explore it. I think that then opened up pathways for me to then look into the possibilities of, okay, what other things are there for me to do outside of just this getting this undergraduate degree? Mm -hmm. um, so I decided to... I think that was a one small step in me deciding to pursue graduate school training. But I think the other pieces is I think about community and representation and what it means for me to hold space of being a first generation uh, college student, college graduate, and going on to graduate school. I think that it was thinking about individuals in my family or individuals from my local community who also did not recognize this as a possibility or a potential and kind of holding space of navigating um, what it's like to operate inside of the system. So I think those were some of the early kind of foundations that led me to pursuing graduate school. And it's something I still kind of continue to reflect on um, as I advance through, through my training. What were some of the, you mentioned that, you know, you were first generation. What were some of the challenges that you had to navigate through in higher education in your undergrad and even in your graduate um, studies? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the first challenges that, you know, it's very difficult to really reconcile in some ways is family who, you know, coming from a family background where going to college was not the norm. Mm -hmm. Talk about the experience of being in school, like they just don't really understand it in the same way. It's like, oh, you have an assignment to complete. Like, okay, easy, right? But the other nuances of what it's like to hold space and predominantly white spaces as well as someone who attended predominantly white institutions, like just the extra layers of not having access to as much support. I think those are some of the like internalized things that have impacted like my thought process showing up as a graduate student. But then there are other financial implications of, okay, well, my family didn't come from much privilege or resources. So trying to navigate what it's like to work within the resources that I do have to provide for myself but also thinking about money that's being shared back at home with other individuals in the family who just don't have the same type of circumstance. So honoring the privilege that I also obtained, I also have obtained through obtaining my graduate school studies or going to college and still finding ways to kind of give back. So those are all like just extra pressures on mm -hmm. responsibilities of just attending graduate school and attending college and higher education in general. Um, that for students of color in particular are impacted by. Yeah, because I actually have done a, a study on um, the experiences of first-generation college students, and the majority of the students uh, were um, students of color, you know? And so uh, one thing in particular that I, the theme that kept on coming up in those interviews was that this difficulty asking for help 
And it was such a challenge. Did you ever face that in your journey? Oh, absolutely. I think even now, I don't know about (laughs) that aspect of, okay, hey, I I need assistance with this piece. Um, So I do think especially uh, imposterism is real, right? And I think for lots of students of color, first-gen students as well, is when you go to college, it's there's that expectation that I can perform. And if I can't perform, if I don't view myself as being able to perform at this level that other individuals are, what does that mean? Does that mean that I'm not worthy of being in this space? I often try to remind students, and I had to remind myself lots of times, that I wouldn't be occupying this space if I wasn't meant to occupy this space. So fighting back against some of those internalized messages that we hold that impact our progress in academic spaces. I think those are definitely important and real things to kind of honor, validate, and work through. Yeah, yeah. And definitely that imposter syndrome, um, it follows you even as you, you know, you get your degree and you go into, you know, you get that tenure track or you're in a, a tenured position, you still have that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm I'm glad you you mentioned the whole imposter syndrome um, nuances that we deal with because I'm a TA for um, my intercultural awareness development class. And many of my students who are first generation students kind of talk about that in their reflection papers. And actually, just last week, I was grading um, some of their papers and I know Dr. Kevin Coakley has done a lot of um, podcasts and work on imposter syndromes and like has spoken about like, you know, his journey through that. So I actually like sent some of those links to my students and I'm like, I've heard this and I think this is something we all struggle with. And I'm hoping that, you know, it gives you some healing as it's helped me. But what are some of the things that's kind of helped you deal with some of those internalized messages or, you know, those imposter syndrome nuances when they come up? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that, um, the pointing out the the work that many of those before us have engaged in with really kind of setting the the foundation for pointing out and naming some of the very things that we're talking about. When it comes to graduate school, I remember at the very start of, um, of graduate school, my advisor said something to me that kind of stood with me. So on difficult days when posturism was really there and I was like, okay, it's really hard to shake. But he was pointing out, my advisor also, uh, a Black man, it was really important for me to find kind of connection of working with someone who I did share some similar identities with. But he he mentioned, he said, Terrell, it is, it is ordained for you to get this degree. It, it, and you will finish this degree like it's already that's already done. Right. This is just a step along that journey and being at the end or towards the end of that journey. Now, I reflect back of those just words and what those words meant to me in the moment of saying, hey, you you've done the work and you're here. And I, to me, that was also that extra layer of and we are going to make sure that you have the support that you need to get through it. Um, so. For me, I think those were all the right things that have helped me like push back against some of those negative internalized messages about what it's like to show up in different spaces or what I can and cannot accomplish while you know pursuing um, graduate training. I think those are some pieces that have helped me, but also being in community with other individuals. I think that has been a huge source of just strength and comfort and knowing that I'm not navigating this experience alone. And that connecting with other students who are also experiencing similar types of concerns about imposterism, I think those have been significant um, outlets of both support and encouragement. Yeah. And, and when, you, you, when you think about it, you're always going to be an imposter, right, in a system that's mm-hmm. built to not have us be a part of that. Yes. So we're always going to be imposter in that system. Yes. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really happy how you mentioned, you know, something that your advisor shared with you and also the community part of it, too, because there is strength and solidarity and strength in numbers. And, you know, I, I, I know you through you in your leadership role of being Division 45 campus co-chair. And when I was part when you were co-chairing with me, I would see you do that in our meeting. Like you've done that for me. You've done that for many students at the committee where 
you would talk about these things and really just not use yourself as an example and share your experiences, but also brainstorm together as to, okay, we know this exists, but how do we kind of support one another through this? So I'm really happy that you shared that. So thank you. Thank you. So I know you've done um, a lot of like your clinical work collaborating with college level students, and that's something that's a passion of mine too. And I'd like for our listeners to know, you know, what are some challenges um, students of color do endure? I know we've mentioned a few earlier, like, you know, being first generation students, imposter syndrome. What are some of the other presenting concerns that you've seen in your clinical practice? Yeah, absolutely. So right now I'm at the University of Texas at Austin um, and seeing students at their counseling and mental health center. And it, it's just it blows me away how many students of color um, and students who hold other minoritized identities um, come in for specific concerns that are connected to like the lack of support and resources available to them. Um, on campus. So really feelings of like loneliness and social isolation, just not having community to connect with. Um, and I think that's a, a issue that's like multiple on multiple ends, right? So the students are feeling that there's not enough uh, representation within their, their groups to connect with, but then also not seeing that representation reflected in the professors and the instructors mm -hmm. they're interacting with and not seeing that representation with individuals at the counseling center as an example as well. Um, so I, I do think it's like that multi-tiered approach of just there's folks who are really wanting to establish deeper connection and support and comfort, but don't have necessarily the the outlets or the tools to to kind of receive that. Also think about, you know, this is only meeting one segment of students who have reached out for support. And also then imagine how many other students are there who really are needing support, but don't know how to um, reach out and ask for it, or, or we aren't capturing and going out and meeting them where they are. So I think those are some other kind of nuances of, you know, how do you really establish community when the community that you're looking for is really small? Um, and how are the systems that we're operating within reinforcing just yes. your presence and providing more outlets of support uh, for students of color? It's almost like a double-edged sword, too, because I know that many students of color gravitate towards, you know, faculty or staff of color more. And these are the folks who are also overtaxed. And there's just way too much burden on that. And the system is not built to support that, you know? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I want to follow <laughs> all of that because I think those have been lots of my experiences recently, too, of oh. Caseload that I currently see are students of color, and it's having no ongoing dialogues about what does this mean, and and then also me having to search within myself of saying, wait, but this is also what drew me to this area is to be this representation and to be this voice. So while it is like taxing, it also is still rejuvenating and it's still rewarding and it's still fulfilling. So I try to pour my energy into that. Uh, I try to, you know, manage self-care, manage establishing connection, but also recognizing that if if I was not here, then really who, especially in our center, there are very few um, Black male staff in particular. So I then think back to what does it mean if I wasn't in this space, then who would they have? Um, so recognizing their strength, even in, in, in representation, um, despite the, the lack of numbers that we have. Oh, yeah. I love that. Thank you. And also people like that. And also like, you know, like while you are doing this internship, like not long ago, you, you were a student. So I feel like with so much of that lived experience where you saw that absence of not having that at your campuses or noticing that, you know, in college campuses, I, I appreciate how you said that, yeah, it is taxing, but if we don't have more representation of ourselves in these spaces, then how can we really make that change? How can we really support one another, our students on the larger scale in doing that? So I'm always very inspired by you, but I'm also very grateful that, you know, you are there for your students in that, in that capacity. And what do you think <laughs> college campuses can do to engage in more solidarity and advocacy work, you know, for their students of color? Yeah, 
You know, that's just an interesting question in general. Um, so I think about what's, what, what colleges can do, but also I'll think about like, why do colleges want to do that work? So I think that some, at lots of points, depending on where students may find themselves geographically, is that is that tension point of not just what can we do, but can we even do it? Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, living in a state right now where, you know, concepts um, are being questioned about whether or not they can be taught or they can be introduced in thinking about how navigating within the state agency or the institution that is here um, in, in higher education, the question then comes to, you know, how do we navigate resources of providing services, but also not feeling as if we are threatened or risk or risking funding, for example, losing access to, to, to care support services for students. So I think that it's it's making sure that the values of the institution align with the stated values that you're wanting to declare towards students of color. Because um, that's often what I'm finding to be a, a mismatch in my experiences, is thinking about how institutions are providing some support, but those supports are really kind of structured around certain parameters of not making other people uncomfortable. And that's not how we really show up with solidarity. That's not how we really um, show students of color that we are caring for their concerns. It's pushing back against the systems that tell us that this isn't needed. And it's intentionally and knowingly pushing back against those as opposed to conforming to the status quo uh, to, to please others. So I think that's a, a grapple point. It's a tension point that I recognize is very real um, for students, depending on where they may find themselves studying. Um, but doing the internal work to recognize values and working within spaces on campus um, to connect with folks who do have similar values. I think another thing that I'll say is institutions have a lot of work to do <laughs> to oh, address yeah. Uh, anti-racism, but the people who are committed to that work are there. And I oftentimes have to separate my my feelings and my reactions of frustration when the institutions and the systems are not showing up how they need to show up and really pour my attention into the individuals that are there, that are doing the work. Because that's what happens with solidarity, right? You know, we have to know that there are other people in our corner who are really backing us up and supporting the work that we do, even when the larger systems around us are saying it's not okay. And Terrell, I want to congratulate you on, you know, the awards that you've obtained, um, the Jeffrey Tanaka Memorial Dissertation Award. Um, It looks like you've gotten quite a bit of awards, so congratulations on that. And one thing that I I do want you to talk a little bit more about is this restorative justice attitude skill um, that I'm sure a lot of our listeners are uh, curious about. Can you tell us about that scale and your, you know, the process in developing this scale? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the restorative justice attitude scale is a measure that I developed uh, both along, well, myself and my um, doctoral advisor, Dr. Tomakui Bailey. Really, I think this this scale, I, part of it stems from sorts parts of my lived experience of being a justice-involved individual and interfacing with criminal legal systems and thinking about how individuals who interface with such systems are subjected to additional like marginalization and oppression, um, and thinking about how that does not really align with the values of healing and restoration and reconciliation um, that are central to a lot of the work that I engage in. Um, in, in the study of counseling psychology. So in having conversations with my with my professor about, you know, hey, you know, how are how are we addressing students who we may be missing, in particular, students who hold minoritized identities that are kind of subjected to oppression based off the systems that we're operating within? What are we doing to capture those individuals and to provide more opportunities for growth and healing um, in ways that are authentic? but ways that are also maybe different than traditional systems of of justice. Um, So we together, we kind of put together our heads and thought about and dived into the literature of restorative justice. And we thought about the different subcomponents. So recognizing that when harm occurs, there's somebody that's been hurt, um, somebody who may identify as the survivor or the victim of that harm. But also on the other end, there's the person who's engaged in wrongdoing. Um, who oftentimes may be referred to as the fender. Um, 
But then there's a larger community that is then impacted by a situation that happens. How do we bring all the individuals together to collaboratively come up with a resolution to that harm in a way that's still honoring accountability, a way that's still naming, hey, this system is is impacting our experience, but how do we work to create more restoration and healing despite what's happened? Um, Because we are still a part of a community. So it's moving away from this other punishment-focused approach that pushes people in the corner when wrongdoing has happened. Um, That's where guilt and shame really sits in and leads to other negative mental health consequences towards saying, no, how do we come in and actually hold people accountable in a way that's still um, emphasizing growth-oriented processes that can happen? Um, so that was kind of the process of that. We, we The items mm-hmm. for the measure went under expert review and we got some feedback and, and sent it out to large populations and, you know, was very successful with just using that in, in additional studies, um, looking at race, for example, within my doctoral dissertation. That's the one that received the Tanaka Award. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So really, really, really excited about just that measure and what we're, what we're doing with it. That is, yeah, that is actually very excited. And um... I would like to see that scale myself. And I'm actually wondering how can can we apply that scale to community work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was talking about this the measure of uh, the research that I did on on looking at race, but what I did, that was more of a kind of a manipulation-based study where I was looking to see whether or not individual support for restorative justice would differ based off identity characteristics of the person that is engaged in harm. Um, So I did a racial manipulation study and I looked um, against comparing a a black identified person against a white identified person. And they were presented with a harm vignette scenario um, about a campus um, sexual assault that happened. And students were asked to rate how harmful they perceived the incident to be and what they thought the appropriate outcome should be. And the results were quite interesting. The results actually show that overall participants were more supportive of restorative justice as opposed to punishment. They also thought that the degree of harm, thinking about uh, from a scale of one to 100, the degree of harm was higher, significantly higher for the white student, for those who received the white student vignette and the black student vignette. Their support for restorative justice was higher for the black student than the white student, which was surprising to me but doing all the statistical things and putting it into structural equation model modeling, the results actually changed. And it said that although participants saw the degree of harm as higher for the white accused student, it didn't have much bearing at all on their support for restorative justice. So even though it was a high harm severity, we still support restorative justice as a viable outcome. But the context of that result changed for the black students. So It was less, the degree of harm was perceived as less uh, severe in comparison to the white student, but participants were significantly less supportive of restorative justice for the black student. So it's really speaking to the the aspects of, you know, restorative justice as being a luxury that individuals of color may not be able to afford because of aspects of, of oppression and racism that impact individuals' perceptions of, hey, you've engaged in this harm, what should happen as an outcome? Looking at this in in a clinical context and thinking about clinical applications of this research, it's really thinking about how do we develop intervention programs around restorative justice to counteract some of these negative stereotypes or associations that people have about people of color and their options towards restoration. Um, I've worked with some individuals who who I've partnered and and had ongoing dialogues with individuals who are part of like different justice-based systems, so juvenile probation, for example, who's wanting to look at the measure to assess individuals' attitudes on a pre and post kind of scale measure. So look, what are people's attitudes about restorative justice before engaging in like restorative healing circles and community uh, dialogues about harm that occurs? And afterwards, after engaging in these practices, now what are your views towards restorative justice? Do you have greater beliefs in the possibility of reconciliation and healing um, before and after, yeah, before and after engaging in, in those processes? I'm I'm so happy that you know you're having those conversations with um, the juvenile system, and I'm so happy that you've put this out there because you know, um, as we know, with most research and most scales that exist, it doesn't really capture the experience of, you know, 
marginalized communities and what their identities look like. And I'm actually taking a child forensic assessment class this semester and been learning about like restorative justice um, and things like that. And I'm really hoping that, you know, um, people who do do competency trials or like do assessments for the court start incorporating this into that decision making because it's such a valuable tool out there. Can we apply that scale, Terrell, to other communities of color? Yeah, I think so. One thing I've not had the opportunity to do, but absolutely am interested in doing at different points is doing some measurement invariance across different um, communities of color to see how their attitudes towards restorative justice may differ. Um, one thing that's interesting about about and some feedback that I've gotten about the scale in general is how the context of the situation that we're referring to may also influence individual support for restorative justice. Um, so I often like to tell people uh, or I like to like use the example of if we draw if we draw back from a larger scale and we think about who the individual who's been harmed or the the victim or the survivor if we look at the context of who that person is differently than what we have I think usually times people think of about a singular isolated event that has happened and we say hey this person's been victimized in this event but if we were to take a structural view of this and we think about communities of color. And we look at communities of colors as being the individuals who are um, the survivors of harm. And we look at the systems that contribute to those harms as being the, the offender, the wrongdoer. How are our views of restorative justice then operating? Um, how do we work within the larger systems to create change in a way that will lead to restoration and healing? but also holding the systems in itself accountable. So the systems of white supremacy, the systems mm -hmm. uh, that contribute to oppression, even within higher education as an example, right? So how do we also then shift our perspectives about rec restorative justice, working with specific communities of color based on, again, contextualizing who is serving in what roles as the, as the survivor, the victim, the wrongdoer, and then the larger, broader community that is also at play as well. Oh my gosh, that is so exciting. Let me know if you need help disseminating that. That's, you know, when you start calling for participants. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, I think it also speaks to the mission and vision of, you know, our presidential task force and, you know, understanding those attitudes and how can we be better accomplices to cross-racial ethnic solidarity. And I'm really, I mean, I know you will do this, but I can't wait to see how, this can be applied to different communities and how solidarity work can be um, seen through this in different spaces. Absolutely. I'm excited about it too. I know it's just getting started. So, you know, I, I, I know we kind of just dumped in into like understanding your scale because we were very excited, but I want to kind of go back a little to you know, that question I asked you about what do we need to be doing better in colleges and in college campuses? And I really appreciate the perspectives you shared because it is important that we're just not doing it on a performative level, but also understanding who 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 is currently doing work right there at, at our college campuses and how can we continue to you know, build our numbers in engaging in more of that work. So speaking on like a community level. I know this is a loaded question. So um, what are your thoughts on how can we be better accomplices for you know, dismantling all forms of racism and oppression in cross-racial ethnic solidarity with other communities of color? Yeah, no, I really appreciate the, uh, the question. And, and absolutely, I think there are lots of different angles where it says, you know, how do we continue to show up and how do we create opportunities for showing up? I think for me, really, it starts with being able to listen. Um, I think that's the first and foremost thing of being able to listen to individuals, being able to listen to communities that are impacted by, by situations of oppression and structural individual levels of racism that impact their experiences. Um, creating space for individuals to share and, and talk about their experiences first off, and then also being there to listen. Um, I think it's also... And while listening, it's that 
pull towards, we notice that we may be pulled towards action and we may want to resolve um, when sometimes that may not be needed. So I think it's also then asking questions, right? So asking questions with individuals of how can I support you? What it, What is it that I can do, right? Um, I, oftentimes the, the assumption is to lead towards action, but if we're leading towards action without checking in with the communities impacted, then, then is that really doing uh, just service to the individual? So I think it's those those two are the first and foremost things. So being able to actively listen, holding space and asking questions. Um, oftentimes, especially in, in navigating some of the leadership roles that I've held, it's been that, that tension point where an event happens and, and a group is impacted, um, but another group may feel like they're marginalized or they're not seen. Um, or there's another event that happened within another community and it, it, it's leading to this tension point. Um, but the similarities between the experiences are all the same, um, which is the, the roots of oppression and racism um, that impact our lived experience. So it's really how do we create more opportunities to share common space about the experiences in a collective way, as opposed to an individualistic kind of cultural way. Um, so I think it's kind of naming that, it's honoring that and it's saying, how can I show up better? How can I do things differently? Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy you mentioned that because that's kind of been something most of our guests on the podcast have also shared of, you know, especially over the last two years, well, three years when the pandemic started, where so many communities were getting affected at different times, but it was all happening at once. And certain communities felt that, you know, they're not really being um, highlighted or so they're not really being supported and um, other communities felt left out so I, I really appreciate how you said that at the end of the day we're all going through subjective experiences but you know the pain that we're dealing with or coming together is something that we can do to help one another and heal together and you know it's it's really inspiring how you've done that just throughout your whole career so far, just right from your reason of, you know, wanting to become a clinical psychologist, the clinical experiences you've had, and also the research work and leadership work that you've engaged in. Like, I feel like in your own way, from the beginning, you have started engaging in cross-racial ethnic solidarity and so grateful for everything that you've done and everything that you're going to do. And um, really appreciate also the steps that you've listed out because I think sometimes we see a lot of performative action but we don't take a step back and understand checking in with someone just being there and listening so I really appreciate that perspective yeah you know as I appreciate that so much thank you um I think another thing it led me to like reflect on as I heard you say that was how much of that like cross-racial um and ethnic solidarity has happened throughout like my tenure of being in graduate school, even even without recognizing and realizing that, you know, it really takes a village. And I think about my trajectory towards being here, like this, this humility in saying that it was not all done on my own, right? And that there were individuals across different racial and ethnic backgrounds that, that has really poured into me in different ways and has really helped to kind of shape the trajectory of where, you know, things are moving forward. And I, you know, I do invite people to kind of reflect on that. So when we we reflect on those experiences, we recognize that yes, we we may share um, our cultural heritage and our cultural communities, which is definitely needed and important and so and so validated. Um, but there are also other individuals, there likely have been other individuals in our lives that have had other impacts and being able to kind of honor those processes too and being able to work with individuals who do hold differences and identities. Uh, I think those are the pieces too that also leads towards the solidarity of recognizing that we are still in community with each other mm -hmm. and it still makes a difference. Most definitely. I, I appreciate you saying that because um, something that, you know, I've always, like we've had a lot of elders on our podcast so far and something Dr. Donna and I are always like talking to them about is how they've kind of paved the way also for our future generations. And, you know, while there's institutionalized racism and systemic oppression that will continue to exist in our society, we've also not had to deal with some of the nuances they've had to deal with 
you know, in like the 1960s and the 1970s and way before that. And I, I really appreciate how you are saying that, hey, we need to be humble also. And it takes a village to get to where we are and recognizing that too. So thank you. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Donna, do you have anything to like add or like ask him before I kind of end <laughs> with my favorite question? Well, I... I'm actually just uh, while I'm listening here, I am just really excited um, and honored and just overall proud that we have such exciting, you know, leaders and, uh, you know, in the field up and coming. And I, I can't wait to read more of your work. I would love to collaborate with you one of these days, you know, um, <laughs> it's just to me, it's. It just it's it's telling where our field where psychology is you know it started out as this uh, proponents of eugenics and it's slowly emerging I mean it's still not completely changed there's still the systemic issue like what Pooja was saying but it's it's slowly boiling you know I'm excited yes you know I I'm very much excited too and I think that you know as much progress as psychology has made, there's also, you know, the larger systems at play that try to discredit or that tries to uh, minim minimize the impact. For example, again, as I was speaking earlier about like the, the movements around what topics can and cannot be discussed mm -hmm. in educational spaces, right? Like all of the psychology literature that we have that points one direction, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it reminds me that while we've made so much progress, it seems like there's still so much progress still left to make. Um, so I'm just kind of excited to be a part of that experience and hoping that other students who may also feel like they are losing some motivation or some hope around what it may be like in some different spaces also still feel empowered and encouraged um, to continue to persist in the fight. And also thank you for you know staying in a state where there's a lot of challenges, systemic challenges, you know. Um, so that really shows. Are you, are you planning to stay there and practice? I I am not. I am actually in a, <laughs> I am actually transitioning off into a position <laughs> um, at Maryland. So I'll be okay. I'll be moving to territories. So it's it, that there's going to be challenges there too. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, it is still uh, the system. I think, you know, while the location is changing, the systems at play are in lots of ways still the same. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really, I mean, I, congratulations. And I'm so happy and proud that, you know, you are going to be on that assistant professor um, tenure track in the Department of Psychology in Maryland. And we need more professors like you. We need more leaders like you. And students need you. And, I'm not going to get into teaching, um, but I'm I'm happy that, you know, like you and Dr. Donna and like many others are engaging in that because it's so important and we definitely need that. Yes, absolutely. I have one more question for Terrell. What, what courses will you be teaching? Yes. So, you know, very much at the introductory stages of, uh, of this, but I will be teaching the psychology of racism. Um, next year at University of Maryland. So really excited about that um, and really thinking creatively about how do we get, uh, or how do we emerge and, and immerse ourselves within the kind of literature um, a bit differently, but also in a way that still feels restorative uh, for students. Oh, love it, love it. If, if you're looking for like adding creative um, teaching materials, we're just plugging in our podcast. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I'm so happy that you're teaching that course. And um, I think we just have one last question left for you. And in, you know, thinking about what you have told your younger self when you began your journey as a psychologist, we'd like to know what words of wisdom you have for graduate students currently in academia, graduated students getting into academia like yourself, and students of color getting into leadership. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm start with the, the graduate student piece. Um, and I think that this is when I think back to 
my experiences and oftentimes I, especially being here in my last year, I think back to my experience of being a first year student and it feels so far away, but it happens so quickly. Um, but I think it's just a lot of that validation of you're right where you need to be. Um, Cause I think that sometimes we lose insight of that and the progress that we've made to getting this point, it, you know, it's, it takes work to get here. So validating that individuals um, occupy, occupying the space that you're in, um, you're meant to be there. So I think that's just that message of saying, while the days get tough and while graduate students wear many, many hats and it is exhausting and it's tiring, it's still being able to fight and pull from within of saying, I, I know where I am meant to be and I know the purpose. So the more you can go back to thinking about that purpose, um, one thing that I did during my first year is I wrote myself a letter <laughs> uh, during my first year, um, just saying, really reflecting on the experiences that I had in life that led me up to that point of being a first year student. And on the difficult days, it was also that reminder on the difficult days, this is the letter that I'm going to turn to. And I'm going to read this letter because it helps get through um, through those moments. That is so powerful. I love that. I'm actually going to steal that intervention in <laughs> um, all my college clients I work with because I think that's so beautiful and so powerful and also for myself. Thank you for sharing that. Yes. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, absolutely. Then I'll uh, mention, I, you mentioned, uh, I think the other two things I'll, I'll say on uh, teaching and leadership um, with the teaching part I do think that, again, going back to some of those systems-based challenges is that sometimes it can be difficult depending on the types of courses that you're teaching and what individuals' reactions to some of those conversations and classes may be. Um, I try to keep myself um, reminded about being in a space of, of critical thought and critical reflection and being able to expand my own uh, capacity for engaging in critical dialogue. So seeing how open and receptive I am to being able to work with and listen to individuals who may have different perspectives, but also still standing firm in my own kind of values and being able to kind of communicate that. Um, what's been very helpful in my teaching is establishing a network of support uh, where you can talk about and process experiences of teaching and learning from individuals about how to navigate some of these challenging circumstances, specifically in today's kind of uh, climate, where a lot of the things that are being taught are being politicized um, and, and other students then feel empowered uh, to, to voice their disagreements differently than what um, what I wish were, were to be the case, but it's also just an unfortunate reality that we currently find ourselves in. So I do think having the right mentors and individuals in, in place to kind of process and talk about some of those um, things are really important. Then last, leadership. Um, there are plenty <laughs> of leadership. Having served in several leadership roles, I will say that there are plenty leadership um, opportunities available through uh, through divisions of APA, throughout APAGs as well, uh, but also thinking about other local opportunities within your, your, your campuses um, as well to engage in just leadership. Um, not being afraid to put yourself out there. I think that's another thing too, with networking and reaching out and starting a conversation, because you never know where that conversation will go, where you don't know the types of opportunities that can come from that. So being able to kind of get those experiences and really partnering with other individuals who do share similar values. Um, those are all experiences that I found so rewarding in the process of being a graduate student and, and relationships that I'll carry with me absolutely through these next stages. Well, so what I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, I'm just saying, so what I'm hearing you say is that is, is there a future uh, division 45 presidential <laughs> <laughs> campaign here? Oh, yeah. Let me let me make it through a few years of of <laughs> of, of, the, of the academic battle. <laughs> Dr. Donna, you read my energy and mind. I literally was going to say the same thing too. I'm like, we're manifesting that we see Terrell Taylor as future Division Forty Five president. <laughs> I will welcome that. I welcome. I welcome that energy. No, That's great. I mean, we're definitely going to nudge you to do that once you settle in because. 
you, I, I mean, I've seen you, I've seen your leadership as a leader, like over the last year. And um, I'm so grateful that I got connected to you. And, you know, we could have you here today. And, you know, just even your advice as young leaders that you need to network and you need to have those conversations, because what's the worst someone could say no, but you at least need to put yourself out there. And, you know, even with your um wisdom you gave on teaching and um, your experience with that. I think I've been very afraid to get into the tenure track of teaching, just seeing my elders and, you know, you know what kind of goes with that, but definitely teaching part-time is something that I'm inspired to do and hearing you, hearing your words of wisdoms also inspired me more today. And I wanted to just network you and Dr. Donna a little bit more, because I don't know if you know this, but Dr. Donna, in her teaching, um, actually, had, actually, her practice is decolonizing intro psychology. So I will let her share a little bit more about that with you, but I'm pretty sure both of you can connect on that with your teaching <laughs> methods offline. <laughs> I was, I didn't think that you were going to call me out, Pooja. Thanks. <laughs> Um, I, I did, obviously I would call you out and I, it, I think it's, it's beautiful how you're doing that. And I just wanted Terrell to know that I know he has many mentors, but he has someone else also he can reach out to in his teaching, um, and tenure track. Well, route. I think I can learn a lot from Terrell. So it goes both ways. Yes. Yes. I appreciate that too. Absolutely. Look forward to connecting and having some of those conversations. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Terrell. It was so nice seeing you and I hope to see you in person soon, like wherever that might be. And good luck with everything. And we can't wait to just follow your future like endeavors and just wishing you the best. And just thank you so much for everything that you've done already and everything that you're going to do. We are yes. so grateful for you. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. San Diego this summer, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Uh, I know I <laughs> I'm 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 not going to be able to be there in San Diego this summer yeah I, it's a maybe but hopefully I'll see you in APA APA uh, okay, will you yep. be there okay 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 I can't okay I'm definitely coming for APA because I want to see Dr. Kevin Coakley in person and then you and then you know other people but looking forward to seeing you there yes. absolutely absolutely I'll enjoy it all right. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more information about today's guests and their social media links, you can click on the description links of the episode. Pooja Mami Dana and Dr. Donna Demanarik host this podcast. Our podcast team includes our podcast interns, Alexis Rios from the University of Not Texas in Denton, Texas and Petra Zadroga from Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts. We also want to acknowledge our production team, David DeVito and Rachel Sheffer. If you would like to know more about us or to watch video clips of this interview, then follow us on Instagram at APADiv45 underscore Presidential Task Force, on Twitter at APADiv45 underscore Coakley, or on YouTube and Facebook at Dr. Kevin Coakley, APA Division 45 Presidential Task Force. Strength and solidarity. The strength and solidarity.